Good afternoon, everyone. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look into the Word together. Our Father, we thank you that we can gather as an assembly of worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God, very God, Lord over all lords, King over all kings. We thank you that he is the source of our life. He has become our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. We boast in the Lord. We glory in Him. We pray that even in this hour, that Christ would be elevated higher in our minds. That our hearts would be drawn afresh with love and with affection to the only Savior of sinners. That our wills would be directed by Your Word to obey You to follow you, to worship you. We pray that you would instruct the mind, that you would influence the will, and that you would ignite our hearts to love Christ and him supremely. It is for the glory of Christ that we pray. Amen. Take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 15, if you would. Mark chapter 15. The pleasure is mine, the privilege is mine to be with you again on the Sunday afternoon to worship our good God. You see there in the bulletin, I'm going to preach a sermon that I have entitled, The Violence of Calvary, The Violence of Calvary. I want you to know that what I'm going to preach, what we're going to look at here in the Word, is the very heart and soul of the Christian message. This is the very meaning of the Christian gospel, meaning you can't get it wrong. We have to understand this. We have to, to realize what our Savior did for us in love. So follow with me as I just read God's word. I want to set it before us. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. Here's the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. The very passage that I have just read for you from Mark 15 brings us to what we could call the violence of Calvary. For God to create the world was easy. He just spoke and it happened. For God to flood the entire world was easy. God simply brought rain. For God to destroy cities by fire like Sodom and Gomorrah 
was easy. God simply commanded and brought the fire and the brimstone upon the cities. For God to raise the dead. Well, that's easy. He just worked through God's prophets, both in the Old Testament and in the New, to raise the dead. For God to destroy Satan. That's easy. He speaks a word, and we read in Revelation that he will be cast, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever. For God to destroy the whole world by fire, like 2 Peter 3 says, that's easy. He'll do that in a moment in the end. But for God to save a soul. For God to save a soul, it required the violence, divine violence, everlasting violence, infinite violence in divine love to save sinners like me and like you. That is the very event that we come to today in Mark chapter 15. And when we read Mark chapter 15, it's sort of like we're parachuting down right into the middle of these events that we know as Good Friday. We call it Good Friday. It's a day of messianic perfection. And we know from the gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that it was the third hour of the day in Roman time when Jesus was crucified. That would be nine o'clock in the morning. We know from Mark 15, verse 33, that when the sixth hour came, that's 12 o'clock noon, there was a darkness that came over the whole land. And then, according to verse 34, it was the ninth hour of the day, that would be three o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he would die shortly after that. Mark chapter 15 is one of the most remarkable paragraphs in all of Scripture because Mark is showing us right here what happened at Calvary. And not just the events of what happened as if we need to be informed by the entertainment of it. He's giving us the meaning of what happened at Calvary as well. And as we look at Mark 15 in this paragraph together, it's a short few verses, but don't let the brevity of it lead you to think that it's an easy message and a short message for us. There's so much of the mind and heart and love of God in this paragraph for us to ponder. So as we look at this paragraph together, I want to sort of give you the outline for our time this afternoon. I want to show you what God did for your salvation. I want to show you what God did for your salvation. And in the outline, I want to give it to you in three simple phrases. Three simple phrases. I want to show you first the presence of God in judgment. I want to show you the presence of God in judgment. Second, I want to show you the propitiation of Christ, the propitiation of Christ. And then third, I want to show you the pronouncement of victory, the pronouncement of victory. So let's, let's just kind of jump in. Let's jump into this paragraph and let's understand the very first heading, the very first phrase that I want to give you as we look at verse 33 at the presence of God in judgment. Now look with me at our text, verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, we know that that's 12 noon, there was a darkness that came over the whole land until 
the ninth hour. Now that's intriguing, isn't it? Because the presence of God fully came in Jesus Christ, and he's called the light of men, John 1 verse 4. And we read in the scriptures that the face of Jesus Christ shines brightly like the sun, Revelation 1.16. But yet here, when the Son of God is on the cross, there is a physical darkness that points to a spiritual darkness of divine judgment. And I want to show you what I mean by that in the next few moments. What I want to show you is that verse 33 teaches that there was a divine darkness. It was a, it was a supernatural darkness. It, it was a real darkness. But it was a divine judgment kind of darkness. Sixth hour, 12 noon, middle of the day. The church fathers say that the darkness extended far beyond just Jerusalem and far beyond the land of Israel, but even far and wide. Passover was always on the full moon. This was not just some ordinary event. This was a supernatural act of God. Why do you say, Jeff, that this is the presence of God in judgment? Well, we have to do a little bit of a biblical theology to understand what the darkness meant and why God brought a supernatural darkness at this time. Consider with me Joel chapter 2, verse 2. When we read about the day of the Lord, it's a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds, a day of thick darkness, when God consumes and when God judges. So in Joel chapter 2, verse 2, God is present and he's present to judge, and yet one of the ways that that judgment is spoken about is in darkness. We also read this in Amos chapter 5. Amos 5 verse 20, also speaking of the day of the Lord. It's a day of darkness, not light. A day of the Lord is a day instead of, it's, it's darkness instead of light. Gloom with no brightness at all. Similarly, Zephaniah chapter 1 speaks of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.15. Near is the great day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. It is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of destruction, a day of darkness, and a day of gloom. What's the point in Zephaniah 1? The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And one of the ways that is described is a time of darkness. Psalm 18, verse 9. In the day of battle, God bows the heavens and he comes down with thick darkness under his feet. God not only comes in judgment, he comes for war. And Psalm 18, 9 tells us that he comes for war with thick darkness under his feet. So from verse 33, when darkness comes over the whole land from 12 noon until 3 in the afternoon, there was this thick darkness, a supernatural darkness. It was a, it was a spiritual darkness, a physical sight that represented spiritual judgment. Now, it was real. It was present. It was happening. And yet it was a picture of God in his full presence, is here for judgment. 
Do you remember, let me, let me remind you of Exodus chapter 10. Remember the account when the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt and God brings all the plagues upon the Egyptians. And one of the plagues in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 29, is when God brought judgment through darkness. That the plague, no doubt, would have been an attack on all of Egypt's most powerful gods. God came in judgment. And he did it upon the Egyptians when they were in bondage, when Israel was in bondage. Well, in a similar way, God brings the darkness at Calvary to show God is here in judgment, in all of his fullness. So in this darkness, God is here. God is here in judgment. God is showing the power of his holiness. He is the God of light, and yet he brings darkness as an act of judgment upon sin. Verse 33, just such a sobering verse. Could you imagine walking by on that Jerusalem Friday afternoon, a sunny day, a bright day, Passover, lots of people? And all of a sudden, middle of the day, darkness. A darkness comes over the whole land. It is, first of all, the punishment of the presence of God. The presence of God in judgment. Well, okay, but but you understand that. But now, moving on in the passage, we have to understand, well, what does that mean? And why is that there? And why did God come in the darkness of judgment? Well, that leads us to the second phrase that I want to give you in our passage. Number two, the propitiation of Christ. If I had all of my five kids here, they could easily tell you that, that their dad's favorite word in theological vocabulary is the word propitiation. Now, I had to define that for them, and I still have to define that for them, and I have to tell them how to spell that word sometimes. But we have to talk about the propitiation of Christ because this is so vital for us. It's the very heart of salvation. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. I remember reading in Fox's Book of Martyrs about a man by the name of William Hunter. William Hunter lived in the time of Bloody Mary. He lived in the time of the English Reformation. He was a preacher of the gospel, and of course, he was condemned to die, and he would be fastened to a stake to be burned. And right when he was being hoisted up and tied to that stake, he prayed just a short prayer on this really cloudy day. He said, Son of God, shine upon me. And the record tells us that, amazingly, in answer to that prayer, There was a break in the clouds, and just beams of sunlight came right upon his face. So much so that he had to turn the other direction when he died. But ah, when our Lord, when our Lord was on the cross, there was no beam of divine light. There was no presence of God's favor. There was no mercy from God. 
Because the one who would become sin or be made sin had to bear the penalty in full for sin. And infinite justice can never end, it can never stop before it is meted out in full. There has to be a full punishment for sin. This is the account in Mark chapter 15 when we might say hell visited Calvary. When hell came to Calvary, when the Savior went into the fullness of divine punishment and the Savior bore the horrors of hell in our place. Now, in verse 34, let's see if we can walk through this together carefully. In verse 34, Jesus cries out. Literally in the Greek, it's the word, he hurled, he shouted loudly. I'm a preacher, I appreciate this, shouting loudly. Well, our Savior, weak as he was on the cross, he shouted loudly in Aramaic. A quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, you all know it. David wrote it a thousand years beforehand, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I think leads me to believe that what carried through, what carried the Savior through the entire crosswork of suffering, it was meditating on Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Praying, meditating, reflecting, thinking about the psalm. Because I've been forsaken, he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your Savior was not only forsaken by the Father. Your Savior, second, was cursed. By God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we read that he became a curse for us. Galatians 3 tells us, cursed from God, punished from God. Third, your Savior was not only forsaken by God, cursed by God. Third, he was sin-bearing Sin-bearing, 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He was the sin-bearer on the cross. Your Savior, fourth, was wrath-absorbing. Wrath-absorbing. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only was your Savior forsaken, he was cursed, he was sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, but fifth, he was enduring. He was enduring. Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured the cross. He endured it. He didn't give up early. He didn't stop early. He endured the cross. When our Savior was alone, more on that in a minute, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As if that wasn't enough, verses 35 and 36 tells us about the mocking of the crowds. 
They're not even done ridiculing the Savior yet. Verse 35, the bystanders are hearing this, and they think, ah, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He must be calling for Elijah, because there is a Jewish thinking from Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 that Elijah was going to return and he would help those in need. Well, if he's really the, the Messiah, if he's really the Savior, let Elijah come and help him. They were darkened. They were mocking. They were blinded. They were mocking the Son of God. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I remember I was living in California at the time, and I was speaking at a little weekend getaway for some young people, and after a number of sessions, there was a little Q&A at the end, and one of the young men asked me, what does Mark 15.34 mean? How can Jesus be forsaken by the Father? What, what does that mean? And how do we understand this? Well, what a great question from that young man. Let me see if I can help you understand this. But to do so, I want you to journey with me. I want you to journey with me into the place of hell's torments. The door opens, and immediately you're engulfed in flames and fire and agony, like the rich man in Luke 16. The prison of God's hell is the prison where God has and holds and binds and punishes sinners forever. God is the owner of hell, not Satan. The place of hell is real. It's a literal place. It's not a myth. It's not imagination. It's not a fake place. It is a real place, a real abode. Jesus says that frequently. When we think about hell's torments, we have to think about the frightfulness. The frightfulness of the place, because it also includes the companions that are there in hell. Satan is there. The demons are there. All rebels are there. All unbelievers will be there forever. We think about the torments of hell. We certainly must think about the darkness of hell. It's thick. It can be felt. It's real. It signifies the absence of God's presence in love, but the fullness of his presence in glorious justice and holy anger. When we think about the holiness of God in hell, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holy wrath of God, it ensures that hell for the unbeliever will remain and endure and be prolonged forever. The gnawing conscience, the gnawing conscience of a heightened memory will be exacerbated and sinners will, will remember the times that they had when they heard of Christ and they slighted his love and they rejected his grace and they refused his salvation and forever and ever and ever every lost soul in hell will remember with a clearer mind and a crisper recollection all of the opportunities that they had to turn to Christ now. We think about hell and we think about the anger and the sinfulness and the indignation of lost souls. No one in hell will ever repent. 
It will increase their anger, their hostility, their, their indignation will increase all the more in hell. No soul will ever be humbled in hell. No soul will ever grow kinder toward God in hell, but only hostile, only increasingly hostile forever and ever and ever, like, like Isaiah 66 teaches. Hell, we must think about the oven of God's fiery wrath, which will be unquenchable unmitigated, undiminished, and unbearable. It's like sinners will be thrust into the oven of torment, the fire of wrath, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone with a, with a new body prepared and fitted by God, and it's able to endure the perpetual burnings of fire. But I agree with the Puritans that the hell of all hells the hell of all hells, the worst of all evils is the eternality of it. It never will come to an end. There, there's no flicker of hope. There's no escape in God's sight. The character of God is infinite. So, so every sin that has ever been committed has offended an infinite holiness. And so God must mete out sin with infinite punishment. So no sinner will ever, ever, ever escape. Ever. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? When Jesus uttered these words on the cross, the spears of God's fury were thrust into the soul of Christ so that you could escape. The arrows of God's justice pierced into the soul of Christ so that you would be spared. The pounding blows of God's vengeance crushed the soul of Christ so that you could be spared. The relational abandonment of God's love tortured the soul of Christ so that you could be embraced and accepted and know the love of Christ. The fire of God's anger and hot wrath mercilessly churned the soul of Christ so that you might forever be embraced by the Savior. He did it for you. He endured this for you. He went through this for you. Every selfish motivation, every lustful thought you've ever had, every hateful and angry inclination you've had, every prideful response, every moment Christ was not cherished supremely in your heart, all moments of idolatry, all fear, all anxiety, all unapplied and unpracticed sermons, Lack of love for God's people, unused evangelism opportunities, man-pleasing, love of money, greed, covetousness, all of your sins. God put it on the Savior, and he punished his son for you. Jesus 
paid it all, like the hymn says. He paid it all. It it was your sin and my sin that held him there. It was my sin that, that pressed upon the soul of Christ, and yet he took it all. I love the way Paul gives a commentary on this in Romans chapter 3 in verse 25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in the divine forbearance he passed over former sins. At the cross, it's as if God did the work to the Son so that you and I might escape. And it was the work of punishment, of pouring out wrath for our sins. What I have just described for you in the last few minutes together is propitiation. Propitiation is the appeasing, it's the quenching, it's the turning away of divine anger. It is the satisfying of divine justice. You see, what our text teaches and what the Bible teaches is that man's greatest need is that I need God to save me from God. And there's only one who can do it. Jesus Christ. And him alone. That's the propitiation of Christ. Hallelujah for the cross. But, but Mark isn't done. I mean, the, the, the paragraph continues, not just the presence of God in judgment, verse 33, not just the propitiation of Christ in verses 34 and following, but now number three, if I can give you this third phrase as we continue to walk through this paragraph together, Third, I must give you the pronouncement of victory. The pronouncement of victory. Because what we have in verse 37, it's a short verse, but oh my, is it loaded. Is it loaded? You see, in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry. That's actually quite shocking. Because what we read historically from the Greco-Roman forms of execution in crucifixion is that criminals on the cross did not have a whole lot of strength to utter a loud cry. As time would go on, they would have no strength. But not so with the Lord Jesus. He uttered a loud cry. I think we know from the Gospels what that loud cry is. I think we know from John chapter 19, verse 30, for you and me in English, it's three words. In the Greek, it's only one word. Tetelestai. It is finished. The loud words of Jesus on the cross when he finished paying For our sin, it is finished. The work that the Father had sent me to do is done. The work of bearing the Father's wrath is done. The work of redeeming God's elect is done. Appeasing, satisfying, 
absorbing, quenching divine wrath, done. It's finished. But this word is the word that will never be heard in hell. No one in hell will ever be able to say, it is finished. No one in hell will ever utter tetelestai. No one in hell will ever pay in full for even one of his sins, much less many sins every day of his life, hundreds of days per year, for many years in his life of rebellion. But Jesus, Jesus cried out, to tell us, die, it is finished. Can you hear it? As if you were there walking by. From the, from the dying Savior, who was forsaken by the Father, bearing divine judgment, taking the fullness of divine hell, saying it's finished. And verse 37 says, he breathed his last. What's remarkable about this to me is that it's an active verb. Jesus remained in active, perfect, sovereign control even until the last breath of his life. He was not passive. He wasn't a victim. He didn't pass away. He didn't succumb to death. He was not a martyr. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay down my own life. He poured it out. He yielded his life. He gave up his spirit. He breathed last. Hallelujah for the cross. And praise God for this narrative, which not only gives the divine commentary of what happened at the cross, but we read in the text what the Father did to the Son on the cross. But preaching is more than just informing the mind of historical events and the narrative details. So what, you say? What, 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 what does this do? How ought we to respond? Well, first of all, first of all, the first response is joy and gratitude and praise and worship from every one of us who are believers. Hallelujah for what the Savior did for us. And the obvious application for any who might be here outside of Christ, whatever age, that forsakenness that Jesus took is what you will receive if you die apart from Christ. Come and receive him. Come and believe upon his name. The Savior said, repent and believe on the gospel. Feast upon the bread of life and you'll have eternal life. But as we think about our Savior on the cross, there's a couple of additional ways that we can think of this and apply it. I think, number one, this gives courage in your affliction. Many of you here today might be afflicted in different ways. I don't know. 
many of the ways in which you might be afflicted, but I want you to know this paragraph gives you courage in your affliction. Why? Because I believe Psalm 22 is what carried Jesus through his affliction. You see, you can recall your Savior who suffered for you. He suffered courageously for you. And he gives you the strength to stand courageously for him. He gives you courage and affliction. You have a forerunner who did that for you as well. But not only is there courage and affliction, second, there's hope in discouragement. I think this paragraph that we looked at in Mark 15 gives hope in discouragement. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, Jesus really was abandoned and forsaken. You and I might feel. Somebody might feel abandoned by God. But for a true believer, you're never abandoned. You're never forsaken. But Jesus really was. In Christ, you always have hope because he was forsaken so that you could be welcomed. Third, I think this paragraph gives wonderful assurance of salvation. Wonderful assurance. You, you, you look at yourself, you, you'll be discouraged. You look inward and you'll be discouraged. But like J.C. Ryle said, you have a Savior who has done all. He has paid all. He has accomplished all. He has performed all that is necessary for your salvation. So keep looking to the Savior. Amen. A fourth application for us, I think, from these verses. It shows the fearfulness of sin. It shows the fearfulness of sin. Christians who are saved by Christ. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are growing in our love for what God loves. And we are growing in our hatred for what God hates. This is what each sin deserves. Christian, let's, let's fear sin. Let's turn away from it. By the grace of God. And maybe one last application for us as we look at Mark 15. What does all of this show us? I think finally, number five, it shows you the love, the love of God. To behold the mighty love of Christ that he would bear all of this for you. We must say with Charles Wesley, amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. This is the work of the cross. This is what your Savior endured. It is the violence of Calvary for you to be received by the Father and never, ever experience the wrath of God. In closing, I just wanted to share one quote for you from a wonderful book I have on my shelf. I can picture it now. It's the bottom shelf right next to my desk. I've gone there many times in preparing sermons and times of discouragement. It's written by Jerry Bridges. It's a book entitled The Great Exchange. 
He says this, quote, At the cross, Christ extinguished the wrath of God toward believing sinners by his own bloody death. And when he died, he paid the full legal debt that was due by sinners. What's the result of this, Bridges says? With the full penalty paid, the justice of God is forever satisfied, and sinners are united to Christ, and we have been justly forgiven, and we have been eternally justified. Praise God for the beauty and the love, and the power, and the work of the cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our Father, we thank you for this remarkable passage in Scripture. We thank you, O Father, that you have given such clarity regarding the hope of eternal life. The hope of what you, O Father, did to your Son so that we might escape the punishment that we deserve. Oh, help us to grow in our love and our thankfulness and our worship to Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.